Gold Cord by Amy Carmichael. Chapter 12. Rock of my heart and my fortress tower, dear are thy thoughts to me, like the unfolding of some fair flower opening silently. And on the edge of these thy ways, standing in awe as heretofore, thee do I worship, thee do I praise and adore. Rock of my heart and my fortress tower, dear is thy love to me. Search I the world for a word of power, find it at Calvary. O deeps of love that rise and flow round about me in all things mine, love of all loves, in thee I know, love divine. Chapter 12, Give Them Time to Root. Often then, much more often than now, we had to take risks. What soldier does not? It was second nature to hazard anything to save a child. We tried to walk wisely and lawfully too, but at a time when the only adoption the law recognized in the case of a girl was that of a temple woman, it was impossible to always be on the safe side. To have a missionary in jail would not have been comfortable for the society with which we, Mabel Wade and I, were at that time connected. So we arranged with a secretary on the field that if one of us were imprisoned, that one should drop out. Both he and the secretary at home were dauntless in their private friendship, and we think of them gratefully. It cannot have been easy for them to stand by such unorthodox ways as ours had to be. And fellow missionaries, even those who could not quite see with us in other matters, stood by us valiantly in our greater battles. Once the word was caused to run quietly through South India, that should a little girl for whom we were known to be fighting a losing fight in the courts appear at any mission station, she should be protected and passed on safely. And this was done. How often we have thanked God for our fellow missionaries. The token for good by which our Lord first gave us the assurance that this dangerous work was not of our own devising, but that he was truly with us was very comforting. It was in 1904, and except for two Indian sisters to whom all was new and rather startling, I was alone. We had been staying in a Hindu town under the hills when we came upon a tragic little tale. A child of eight was about to be dedicated to the god of one of the great temples of the south. Her father had married out of caste. This had caused trouble. So he had killed his wife and was about to marry again. In a case like that, the child, if there be one, is usually dedicated and the family starts afresh. We tried to save the child, but could not. Now, a month or so later, the Indian friend in whose house we had been staying had found that if certain expenses could be met, she might be redeemed. 100 rupees was the sum required. Would we send it or not? The answer had to be given at once. It was the first time such a decision had had to be made. The life of a child was at stake. We sent the 100 rupees. Then doubts arose. 
nor Scrip, one of Amy Carmichael's other books, tells of these and of how they were set at rest. But Panamal and Pearl, the, the two faithful Indian sisters who shared this matter with me, were unhappy, though, though their loyal hearts trusted me. It was such an unheard of thing to pay money for the redemption of a child. Was it strange that they felt apprehensive? I asked then if I might pray for a token that could not be mistaken to show whether or not we were in the will of our God. And to that the answer, I thought, was yes. What may I ask, Lord? You may ask for 100 rupees. We had never up to that time had a gift of a hundred rupees. And it came. A fellow missionary who knew nothing of this, no one knew outside the house, was caused to think of us and to feel that she should send us something. She was about to write a check for a different sum, so she told us afterwards, but she felt constrained to make it just one hundred rupees. We laid the check on the floor like a little new Gideon's fleece and kneeling around it, we thanked our Heavenly Father. And here's a note at the bottom of the page. Chapter 16 of Norse Script tells of how at the beginning of the new work for boys in 1918, we felt constrained to ask for 100 pounds to come by the next mail. It relates what happened on that mail day. And a later chapter in this book will tell how in 1929, the sum of the sum one of us was moved to ask was not 100 rupees nor 100 pounds, but 1,000. We have learned that though our Lord disciplines his servants by deprivations, mysterious disappointments and many lacks, he does at times cause them to ask and to receive of his abundance. And we have learned also that when the need is in shillings, he gives in shillings. When in pounds, then he gives in pounds. But it is never a light thing to pray in this way. The Lord save us from lightness. The child, Firefly, was her nursery name. She was such a darling, quick, bright little thing, grew up to be a fellow worker, loving and loyal. She refused to leave us for married life. No, I will stay and take care of the children. And with all her ardent heart, she served the Lord who had redeemed her. For 20 years we had her. Then a violent, painful disease attacked her. Play the joy bells for me, she said, just before she passed on. The sound of glory ringing in her ears. At that time, Dr. Pugh, to whom we as a family owe so much, and Dr. Somerville, the mountaineer, were working together in Napur Hospital in South Tranvacore. We had written asking for something to relieve Firefly's pain and expected it by mail. But who can measure the kindness of medicals? The joy bells were being played for Firefly when the hooting of a car, then an almost unknown sound in Donapur called out to us. It was Dr. Somerville with the medicine. So we went to our little funeral festival together that same evening. 
the children carried their colored lanterns, and we sang all the happiest things that we knew. We had even symbols, and a friendship began that night, which has been strength and joy ever since. But to go back to those earlier years in the chapter called, He Took a Towel, we have told how we asked the pastors if they knew of anyone whom we might use and of their disappointing answer. We also asked those of our missionary friends who were in sympathy with us and one to whom we are forever grateful found Papama. She was a young girl, fragile, delicate, with an inherited delicacy. Both her parents and her older sister, a young saint of the order of Elizabeth of Hungary, had died of tuberculosis. And I do not think that Papamal had ever thought of herself as intended for the strenuous life of a soldier on service. But she had heard the call to serve and her heart had responded. Soon after that, one hot Sunday afternoon, she wanted something to read, and she turned to a little book that had somehow reached the house. It was written by Walker of Tinnevelli and was called Custom and Liberty. No one would publish that booklet, for with a firm touch it dealt with matters that are usually left unmentioned because they are too thorny to be comfortably handled, so we printed it ourselves. Papamo read it with rising displeasure, and presently, as something in it probed her more sharply than she liked, she tossed the little book aside. She had been wondering if Donapur could be the place for her. She knew now that it was not. Donapur, odious name. Who would go to Donapur, that place outside the camp of respectable Christianity? Who would go so far as even to wish to be dead to the world and its applause to all the customs, fashions, laws of those who hate the humbling cross? How extremely unnecessary. But the hand of the Lord was upon that heart, and the day came when Papamal set forth upon what to her was a great adventure. Till then, no girl of her station had offered for such work. It was a thing unknown. And year by year, as she went on with God, she grew in valor of spirit till her Lord could trust her to do anything for him. And she became head of that part of the work, which takes the little boys from the nurseries and trains young girls to care for them, a most responsible trust, as mothers will understand. We had at one time among us a girl who believed herself called to join us, and we too had believed her to be called and had welcomed her with joy. But hidden in her nature was the canker of spiritual pride, and this inward thing gradually appeared. She was a heavy burden upon Papamal's heart, and one day when she was trying to help this warped soul to straightness, the girl turned on her with, it's easy for you to talk. And Papamal understood. She had a small inheritance, not riches, but yielding more than sufficient for her needs. She had often wanted to give all her living in one gift to the work, but we had hesitated to accept it. She came now, her eyes shining with that lovely light, 
seen only in the eyes of the Lord's blessed givers, and she would not be refused. If that pile of silver could be used to stumble the feet of this girl, Papama would have none of it. For his sake who gave all, she must give all. And she did. And a joy that is not of earth was her portion in that hour, a sweetness of joy untasted before. The girl with the canker in her heart went on unmoved. And finally, as her influence was injurious, the observant young children in her charge, and as the world word still stands, be ye clean who bear the vessels of the Lord, we had to part. To what purpose then was the waste? Is the precious ointment poured on the feet of the master ever waste? Eternity will answer that question. But not in one stream or in two does a life whose springs are in the holy hills flow out in blessing. And this Indian sister and another also whose special service lies in the training of younger ones are used in many ways far beyond our borders. For who can stay the flowing of the water of life? And there are others, so few, that it is still true to say that the gift is very rare. But still, thank God, some. There is one whose name means perfection, who is now in charge over a hundred girls of school age with, under her, young teaching sisters, each with her own little group of small girls. Perfection was, at the time of this chapter, only a young girl herself, gifted in many ways like her mother, Panama, and like all the girls who are the strength of our Indian fellowship, she was sought in marriage by many. To test her vocation, we sent perfection on a long visit to her relatives, graduates, in good positions in the city of Madras. She returned from that visit sure of her call and in the steadfastness of a purpose that the Lord formed in guards she has gone on ever since. Sometimes, in strange ways, the call comes that compels. Often in India, as in older days in Palestine, the Lord speaks to his simple children in dreams. We do not explain this or defend. We only know that it is so. There was one, hardly to be called a child of the household, though she had been baptized, who sat on the floor day after day with her hair streaming around her shoulders and her eyes pouring out tears, for she was a widow. She must stay in that dimly lighted room. She must sit there and mourn. So said her mother-in-law, also a baptized Hindu rather than a genuine Christian. Just so she sat and wept loudly as custom ordained and lamented according to custom. And because she had a very bad temper and her mother-in-law's was still worse, that house, though wealthy, could hardly be called happy. After some troubled months, the widow had a dream. One whom she did not recognize, dressed in a long white robe, came to her and said, I will send you to a place where they all love one another. He vanished with the word and she woke. 
If this comes to pass within seven days, I shall know that it is certainly the doing of the Supreme, she said to herself. Within a week, a festival was held in the church nearby. The bishop came to it. The missionary took him to see the old mother-in-law and her daughter-in-law as being the noted converts of the place. He stood silently in the doorway and looked at the widow. Then slowly he said something in English. The missionary translated. The words were the same that she had heard. How it was affected, she does not know. But a few days later, she and her little son arrived in Donipur. At first, nothing seemed more unlikely than that we had been given good gifts. A tempestuous Hindu woman and a spoiled little boy. What was there of help in that? Today, that woman is our Indian housekeeper, buyer of supplies, seller of unconsidered trifles that would, but for vigilant eyes, disappear unprofitably, by products of grain, tins, bottles, and so on. And the boy, grown up and married to a, lot to a lotus bud, is a member of our fellowship from whom we can never ask too much. But such transformations require years. As children grew older, they did what they could in the nurseries, and the pressure there, though always heavy, lightened. But still we had no one to take charge of the children's education. And what of the future if they were not educated? Visitors to the place, and even in those days there were many, pressed this upon us. Money came to build a school. Is it impossible to make the idea of entire consecration the foundation of education? Was Andrew Murray's question when he was founding his Huguenot schools two or three generations ago. We had not heard that question then, but the same thought was deep within us as we built our school in faith that teachers would be given to us. Papamal, who is now one of us, and Arulai and Perfection helped as much as they were able, and so did the little growing up sisters, and we carried on as best we could, though we knew our best was not much. Sometimes the admonitory voices were so unanimous about our folly in not using the kind of teacher easily obtained that we felt curiously alone. Who were we to set up our ideas against those of everybody else? But at such a time, something always happened to reinforce our convictions and give us certainty which nothing could shake. Once it was a conversation at the breakfast table. Missionaries from different parts of India were in Donapur that day. All were one in lamenting that the type of Christian we turned out from our various institutions was so lacking in certain qualities which make for character. I could not help wondering, as I listened to the talk of these seniors, how a new type could be expected to evolve from an old mold. It cannot be that the plastic stuff poured into the mold was incapable of receiving a finer impression. Everything in me refused that explanation. It was too easy to be true. 
Open your ears to what Walker Iyer says to you about spiritual things, things theological, but close them if he speaks of other things, things practical, was the advice given to his convert lads by their schoolmaster in the mission school. This was the mold. How expect a new type from it? We knew that we could not use that mold. We could not expose our children to such influences till New Testament convictions and the New Testament attitude towards life in general had become part of them, something that could not be torn out or laughed out of them. The raft the current carries where it will is the Tamil synonym, synonym for the life swayed by the surrounding usual. Those rafts were everywhere. In our mountain ravine, just above our swimming pool, a small tree grows on the rock in midstream. When the river is in flood and a roaring torrent pours over the little tree, whipping off its every leaf, it stands unmoved. Its roots grip the rock. We wanted the children to be like that. Give them time to root, we used to say to our advisors. We are training them for storms and floods. End of chapter 12.